Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm Andrew Musgrove and it's time for another special episode. I'm joined here by our editor Mark Douglas and I give Mark, like I did Chris, the opportunity to pick a subject to talk about at length and if you know Mark he will certainly take up that chance to do so. Mark, um, I'll let you introduce which topic you've gone for. Well I went for the rise and fall of Graham Carr because I feel that it's historically, I think it's a really interesting period in Newcastle's history. And I also feel that it's got um, ramifications for what's for what's happening uh, at the moment as well, because I'm not sure that Mike Ashley's ever really got over the idea that that first glorious summer, or the second glorious summer really, um, where Graham Carr picked some really good players, I think he's still stuck in that idea that that is, that is the model that Newcastle should, should go to. But I also think... To be honest with you, Graham Carr has, has kind of his the rise and fall is definitely the right phrase for it because at one point he was seen as everybody in football was trying to copy what he was doing, and then I think in Newcastle fans' eyes he became a little bit of a, a villain towards the end, which I think was really not fair. And um, thirdly, because you know I had the privilege of kind of getting to know him over the uh, over the time that he was Newcastle United chief scout as well, so um, you know I think it's good it's a good one to kind of look back at. Well, certainly. So, I mean, if you just talk the fans through the first kind of moment that Graham Carr was going to become part of Newcastle United, obviously Ashley had quickly gone from um, the saviour of Newcastle United or the, the person who was going to take Newcastle on to this kind of devil character relegation, etc. had happened mm-hmm. back up in the Premier League and then things started to change and Graham Carr arrived. Yeah, I mean, what's what's really interesting about about uh, Graham Carr's arrival is that it's it, he came in through through contacts that Chris Hewton had. So Chris Hewton uh, had the contacts through Tottenham. He knew, I think it was David Pleat, I think, who was the common denominator there as well. David Pleat's quite quite sort of well connected in football, and Chris Hewton had been given the green light, I think, to make a few changes, and he suggested Graham Carr's name. Now Carr is uh, is a is a Geordie, you know, real Newcastle United fan, big big Newcastle United sort of nut really his granddad played I think always he was involved with Newcastle United as well um, but Carr had been kind of on the football circuit for a while was a kind of unsuccessful well not unsuccessful but he was a lower league manager then he went into then he went into scouting and kind of technical directors and he had a time at Tottenham and he was at uh, Manchester City as well and Sven Goran Eriksson and then more kind of uh, more relevant really was he was at Notts County do you remember when they had their brief sort of surge they, they had spent a lot of money through a lot of money out it Sol Campbell went there and um, and he was there as well I think it was uh, for a very short period of time before that all kind of went wrong and he was looking for a job and he came in he came in under Chris Hewton and what was what was really interesting about that was at first really you wouldn't most, most Newcastle fans wouldn't have known anything about him other than the fact that he was Alan Carr's dad but he started to exert a little bit more influence just because he was starting to pick some good players. And I think Newcastle hadn't had many high-profile Chief Scouts before then. If you look back through the years, you'd be hard-pressed to name the, the Chief Scout at Newcastle United, especially now even Steve Nixon is is kind of, you know, he's certainly not high-profile, uh, certainly not high-profile Chief Scout. But Graham Carr came in and I think he was just, he's quite a charismatic guy, um, got to know people. He's got a lot of contacts in football. And really, what slowly happened over the over the years, Newcastle were looking to move away from uh, the model that they that they had before, which was I think Sam Allardyce really ruined things by bringing in so many players over the age of twenty five who were on their last contracts. Alan Smith, think Alan Smith, think Jeremy, 
um, think I mean it wasn't Kevin Nolan because he came in under Mark, Mark Verdugo was, was there I mean these were players Michael Owen these were players that, that unfortunately they cost Newcastle United fortunes and it, it didn't you know they didn't work I mean we, we talk now about oh well Rafa Benitez can't get these players under over the age of 20 26 27 over well the reason is because Mike Ashley got his fingers burnt with those players Graham Carr came in and he was I think he was actually agreed with the idea that look you can't get these players in they're not they're not right and one of the main things I think that, that persuaded Graham Carr that that wasn't the situation was Sol Campbell coming into Notts County because he said he wasn't in good shape he wasn't right but he was charging a lot he was, he was asking for a lot of money in terms of wages so Graham Carr got on with got on with the job of scouting and I think what was really interesting for me at the time was that you didn't really know what was going on. It wasn't like it was, here's your job, you're, you've been told to go and do this. It was more sort of a collaborative effort between manager, chief scout and kind of the board who know nothing about football. But they had somebody suddenly here who was like, well, look, well, I know about football and I agree with what you're saying and I'll go out and find the players. And it was that slow sort of burn of like, this club is moving in a different direction. And he was really influential in that. Uh, he had a massive, massive impact because he knew the French market. Um, he was starting to I think what happened effectively was that at that time he saw the way that French football was going long before they kind of ended up as world champions. He saw that League One was a place where you could go in and get players who were cheaper than um, who cost cost less than the English market. Um, and also they were they were probably better players than the ones that you could get in England. I'll never forget talking to him once and he told me that they had the option when Masaido Hadara, um, it was Masaido Hadara or Luke Shaw, who at the time were both at very much at the same level, really in terms of the very play, both being capped at international level. And Hadara was basically a cheap, no risk signing. I know that it didn't, he didn't cost them anything really. Um, I think it was, I think it was a six figure, low six figure sum, uh, sum to, to transfer in. And his, uh, his wages were under you know, five, six grand a week, something like that. Luke Shaw was, I think they were asking, 10, 12 million for him then. And then, you know, 10, I mean, I think it was 15, 20, 20,000 pound a week. So that was the market that they were dealing in. And they did really well in it. They did really, really well in it. Um, and he was, and you know, he had a lot of success in those early days. Most certainly. I mean, we've got a list of players um, that Carr was influential in bringing to the club. And I think we'll start with, with Musa Suzuko. Yes, that one was later on. I mean, the, the first summer, um, the first summer was uh, when Hewton brought them up. The club, if, people won't kind of necessarily remember this, but they issued a statement saying there'll be no capital outlay, which a lot of people thought meant basically we're not going to spend anything. It didn't turn out like that because they ended up signing Hatem Ben Arthur and Czech Teoti. So they were the first two came in and that was fantastic. Suzoko came a little bit later on, but what was really interesting about Suzoko was the fact that they got him... Uh, because of a clause in his contract. Effectively, he was reaching towards the end of his contract. They managed to sign him at a time when, I mean, he was he was a £10 million player, but they got him for £1.5 because they knew the agent. And that was another thing that I think Carr did really well in those early days. He was in with the agents, which is what Rafa is now as well, which is why Rafa sometimes gets some really good players. But you've got to get in with the agents. You've got to get in with the right people. You've got to know the right people. And I think that's what Carr did. So Suzoka was a really interesting one. Um, attacking midfielder, they needed one. He wanted, they wanted a box-to-box midfielder, and um, and I think they went out and got a pretty good one. Really, he didn't fulfil his potential at Newcastle, um, but he was a good shout for the money they paid for him. But that means to, to have that knowledge of 
Suzuka's close and to get someone who arguably had a lot of talent, like you said, didn't maybe fulfil it to its uh, full potential at Newcastle. But to to know about that close, I mean, that takes a lot of work. And yeah. I mean, he really did his homework. Yeah, I think um, I think I remember I remember talking to him, and, and it was all about like the job of a scout starts the moment that you kind of the moment that you get in a taxi, the moment that you're kind of around the ground. He said, you chat to the taxi driver, you ask them what the fans think of this player. You go to the local cafe, you're asking them what they think of the player there. Then you go and sort of see him with your own eyes. But you're also chatting to people around the technical director, like what, you know, where, where does he go? What, you know, what, he, he put it down to sort of like, where, you know, did he do, how does he pull his socks up? Is he left, does he pull that up left? Is he, suspe- is he superstitious? Does he want to do this? And it was all about like character and getting the right, and getting the right player. And he said that, what I thought was quite nice was at that early stage, they effectively felt that, look, give us the chance to get in front of these French players. We can sell them Newcastle United. We can bring them over to the stadium and say, look, 50,000 people in front at St. James's Park. It's, you know, it's an incredible place to play. If you come here and play to anything like your potential, you'll be a hero. And I think what was what, what annoyed me slightly was that I think somewhere along the line, they lost that idea that they were selling these players something about the club that was ambitious. And it became come here and we can get a move. And that was, ne- that was that was always part of the initial sell to these players because, you know, Newcastle weren't in the Europe. They, they've just come back up to the Premier League. So they knew that they couldn't sell, they knew that they couldn't sell Newcastle United as a, as a force in Europe at the time, but they could sell it as like, this is a big, big club. But towards the end, it just became come and sign for us. And if you have a good season, then we can, we'll sell you on. And that's what I think got frustrating really towards the end. But Carl was a football man. I think a lot of people see it as see him as like you know well he was part of the Ashley entourage, but he wasn't. He was a Newcastle United fan. Speaking to him the first time he ever came down, he was like, "I know what Newcastle United fans want. They want players that will get you off your seat." And and he tried to make every single one of the big name marquee signings. I think that he recommended to Newcastle. The idea was that these players will get you off your seat. And when you think about it, you know, all of the players that signed. I mean, you'll go through that list. They're all kind of supposedly exciting players, technical players. They didn't sign many. Um, you know, it's not like Rafa does now where he signs players who will come in and play in the system. Arguably, Rafa's way is better because it brings, um, because, you know, it's, it's all, everybody's in the same boat. But but Carl's idea, you know, maybe he was a bit of a dream and was, look, Newcastle United players want players that are going to get you, get the fans off their seat. And you can't argue that there were a few players there that, that, that did do that, starting with Ben Arthur. But Kabai was one. Um, but Sissoko, I think, was one. Sissoko on his day could have been one as well. And I think what happened with Sissoko, the biggest problem really with Sissoko was that people just got into his into his head. You know, his agent was was wanting you know wanting to move him on pretty quickly after his first first sort of good six months. But they weren't by that point. They'd kind of moved away a little bit from what they were doing because the club wouldn't invest the money that they needed to invest to kick on after the after the initial success. I mean, lots of players to talk about, but do you think Carr in the end became frustrated at Newcastle United's stance that he was no longer selling a project, he was selling a stepping stone? I think the problem was towards the end, towards the end it became, the the club didn't want to spend the kind of money that it was going to take to bring in a really top player. And I think what happened about midway through when Carr was kind of bringing these players in was that, and I don't think anybody kind of noticed it at Newcastle, but there was a new TV deal that kicked in about halfway through this period that Carr was in. So for the first two, three years, Newcastle were the Newcastle were 
in a really good position because they weren't the top four. So these players that they signed couldn't go to top four clubs. Most of them, they, they weren't, they didn't have the the kind of profile at the time to be a, a an, an Arsenal or a Liverpool or a Manchester United player. But the teams below them in the league, so you kind of Leicester's, Stokes, if you will, Crystal Palaces, didn't have the money to be able to uh, to be able to offer them the kind of contracts that Newcastle could, and they also weren't able to offer them fifty thousand people playing at St James's Park. So what happened when the TV deal came in was suddenly Palace were Palace were able to spend millions and millions on players because they'd been in the Premier League a few years. Stoke went out and signed uh, Shakiri. You know, I mean, these were players that, that you would never have seen at lower lower Premier League club clubs before. Um, West Ham, who just come up, went out and got Dimitri Payet. Leicester, um, Leicester started signing players that Newcastle just Newcastle would be the only ones who could have afforded. So that was, I think, what happened. They didn't see that. So towards the end, they were suddenly one of many teams looking for these kind of players in France, rather than the only team really shopping in that market. And and that was the biggest mistake that Newcastle made. They rested on their laurels after 2011-2012. They could have kicked on. And they would have, and they would have gone on. But I think that was the decision that was made at the time: was look, we're not going to invest, we're not going to try and kick on, um, and that was the big mistake that they made—a sliding doors moment, really, for Newcastle United. They didn't invest in 2012. If they had done, they probably would have kept most of the players that were, were doing well, and they could have kicked on. And I think that was the Graham Carr's biggest frustration. Speaking to him, that was his biggest frustration. You know, we could have, we could have kicked on because they ended up spending money in the January on. Um, Debushi, Sissoko, Haidara, and Gufran. If they'd have spent that money in the summer, previous summer, then you know maybe they wouldn't have been in the relegation trouble to end up getting there in the first place. I mean, do you think that because Newcastle United spends so little on these players, I mean, New Ankabai cost four and a half million, uh, Teoti, round about that, um, like we've already mentioned, Sissoko, obviously Hatton Ben Offer came in on a, on a on a loan deal, that as things change in the Premier League, Newcastle United was still trying to dictate the market in that way because essentially they were really the first kind of club to to go all guns out in the French league mm-hmm. and in the, maybe the Dutch leagues and get these really do their homework on these players, and yet and we're still seeing kind of instances of this today that they're still trying to dictate how much they pay for a player and it's not the going rate. And you think that Ashley or Charlie is still kind of caught in that mindset where look we play, paid four point five for Kabai, which was under the going rate, mm. we can do it again. Well, I think they're obsessed with the perfect deal. I think they've always been obsessed with the perfect deal um, at Newcastle. They, 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 If they can bring in a player that is not going to cost them, they're not, they, you know, they don't want to overpay for players is effectively what, what, they're, what they're doing. And it becomes, I think they have a valuation on players and they just won't go, they just won't go over it. So the problem is that now I think they don't have the money, or they, they, that's what they tell us. They don't have the money to go and to go and do these things. I think for a pre, for a period in this in the car era, they made a lot of mistakes in terms of financial miscalculations, which which would have kicked them on a little bit. Um, there was one where Laurent Remy I think ended up going to QPR when Newcastle had him under lock and key, and I think they were just too complacent. They let him fly to London, which I think allowed QPR to to nip in and get him, and I think. That was the biggest mistake they made there. I think now what they do now and what they did then is a, a, a different. But they are, they're still slow, Newcastle. They're still very slow to act, and I think they were slow to act then as well. 
um, which was a kind of Derek Lamb bias thing. But then it, that that went over into Lee Charnley, and and Charnley will tell you that it, no, you know, we 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 just need to be careful. We, you know, we need to try and get the best deal. We shouldn't overspend. But you know, there is an element in football that you do sometimes have to speculate to accumulate. And to be fair to Carr, he would he would say, well, I wasn't in charge of the finances. It wasn't it wasn't up to me to kind of do that. I just recommended the players, and he'd go through a list of the players that they they recommended. Aubameyang, Lacazette, you know, these are players that have gone on to do good things in the Premier League. I mean, Tovan obviously has ended up doing really well. They did get him in the end. But there's loads of players out there that Newcastle that I think he, he put into Newcastle that they didn't end up they didn't end up going. Blaise Blaise Matuidi was one that they looked at. Um Javinho was a big one that they wanted. Um I'm thinking Mevla Erdink, you know, a lot of players, a lot of players, Kevin Camero. Good players that Newcastle could have gone and signed, and I think they just wouldn't go to that level. Some of those players didn't want to come to Newcastle. That was the problem. Um, he did sometimes recommend players that didn't want to come to Newcastle. I think, um, even though they'd done the done the homework, but it, but it is it is always. I think there is an element of Newcastle became victims of their own success in that, in that early in that early thing. I mean, Derek Lambias once said to us off the record that um, you know after they'd had all their success, oh well, they're all blowing smoke up our backsides now, but but you won't be doing it if, if we go down the wrong route. And it was like, yeah, well that was true, but when you have a successful strategy, you have to keep innovating it. You can't keep doing it year and year and year. And I think that's what worries me a little bit about this summer is that Mike Ashley still thinks you can do what they did in 2012. And it's harder, much, much harder now. I mean, you see all the Premier League clubs try to do this. They all try and get in bargain players from from abroad and sometimes it works but there's more examples of it failing than there is of it of it succeeding um newcastle are probably i think newcastle probably have a better recruitment record in the ashley era in terms of successes under 10 million than quite a lot of premier league teams car's got a lot of a lot of um a lot a lot of credit for that but also rafa benitez has done pretty well with it as well i think i mean martin dubravka it's probably a 10, 15 million pound player now. Um, there were others in there you would say you'd say would, would be at that level as well. Um, I mean, Perez is a great example. One and a half million pounds they spent on him and he's now probably 15 million pound worth of player. Although he wasn't a car signing, that was Lee Charney who pushed that one through. Car didn't think he was big enough, <laughs> interestingly. So he didn't always get it right. Um, but I do think, you know, that, that policy in those early days was very, it was just very successful, very, very successful. And they built an exciting team and they did it. And again, I think they did it where they were kind of flying in the set and flying in the face of the logic that we all thought. So they sold Andy Carroll and, and we all said, you can't sell Andy Carroll and bring in six players for £35 million and expect to see successful. You can't bring in Denver Bar, Johan Kabai, um, you know, I'm trying to think who else came in that summer. Um, it was Sylvain Marveau, who didn't end up doing much to be fair that summer. But they, but they brought in good players who changed the shape of things and Papi Cissé obviously came in that summer as well and they probably spent all the 35 million on them they sold Nolan they sold Joey Barton and we were like you can't do this This you are going to get relegated this season but they didn't they ended up finishing fifth and I think there's a bit of that mindset still at Newcastle United where well you always you told us we couldn't do that and we did do it and they always wanted to prove common football knowledge wrong they just think that they know a little bit better than everybody else and, you know, unfortunately, the relegations down the years have shown that you can do it for so long, but you can't cheat. You can't cheat the system for that long. But again, uh, you mentioned Cici there. You mentioned Bob. Two excellent signings, bagged the goals. But 
we kind of saw uh, the way Mike Ashley thinks about transfers and the way they approach them. CC should have happened a lot sooner than it did. Um, bit reluctant at times. I think there was maybe something over an injury or uh, at one point, and it looked like it m- might not happen. And then with Denver Bar, again, they took the gamble, but he had a clause, and there was no new contract offered, which could have stopped him from from leaving. Yeah, I mean, he will say. I think. I think the mistake they made with Denver Bar was effectively thinking the same way that most of the rest of the Premier League thought, which was that his knee was his knee was knackered. So we'll put him on a pay, you know, he, he was on a very kind of sort of like very poor basic wage in terms of Premier League strikers, but then had a massive, um, a massive clause for every time he played. So he, so he kind of looked at it and said, well, they didn't show that much faith in me. So why do I need to stick around for much longer? And he was also in a hurry was, was Denver Bar. Papi Cisse was a different one because I think what, Again, the frustrating thing with Newcastle United was another sliding doors moment was the Derek Lambias went to Mike Ashley that January and said, "We're within a whisker of getting in the Champions League here. If you can, if you can advance the money that you will spend that you, that we think we've got to spend in the summer on a striker in January, and we get to the Champions League, it's a gamble that will pay off." They didn't get to the Champions League, but it was still a fantastic season. They finished fifth. It was brilliant. But that was seen as, well, I've invested and I've not got I've not got what I wanted. And that was that became apparent as soon as the season finished, we were getting the word that Mike's not very happy. You've just finished fifth, what are you talking about? Mike's not very happy because he was sold the Champions League. But what we've got is the Europa League, we don't make any money in that. We're gonna need a bigger squad. Um, you know, what like the football log just doesn't make any sense and all this. And it was like, no, you know, look, here's your opportunity. But that is why Mike Ashley doesn't really understand football. But you can be successful the way that Mike Ashley wants to do it. But then the problem is you can be successful, you could be successful then, sorry, I should say, doing the way that Mike Ashley wanted to do it. But the problem was always kicking on. Other clubs did it and Newcastle didn't. Of course, Vernon that was the only man who came in. Yeah, not good enough. You know, that was the problem and, and that was another one. That was they brought him in. He was a car sign and they thought he was he could cover us set number a, a few different positions that was another th- another real aspect of Carr's scouting was he kind of liked players who could come in and play different positions so he, he would kind of come in and he'd say oh well he can play three he can play all the way across the front line and he can play centre midfield or something as well and and, and Vernon Neat was that kind of player but he was I mean I like Vernon but he oh, was very, un- very underrated he wasn't great there was he wasn't what they needed that summer other teams were going out and signing really good players that year Newcastle, there was some, there was there was a, a regretful board meeting that summer where Alan Pardew, I think, made the case that he he, he could he could turn the young players into first teamers. So they had Harris Vukic, they signed Gail Bigger Romana, and he was like, well, give him we'll give him opportunities. Um, the lad as well, Romain Malfatano, all those kind of players. They brought them all in and thought. And I think Alan Pardew got a bit full of himself that summer and thought that he was suddenly the coach of the year, which he was manager of the year, obviously. But they thought, well, we can turn these players into really good players and, and that'll be... But it just didn't work. It didn't work. They weren't good enough. Sammy Amiobi, I remember having an absolute shocker at Bordeaux away and, and that was the end of his Newcastle career and then had high hopes for him. And it was just all a kind of mess. It, it became messy after that. And I think that was when the first seeds of mistrust between... 
the manager and the chief scout that came, which is where the where it all started to go wrong. What was my next question? What was the relationship between Pardew and Carr? Was it was it amicable? Did they get on? It was. There was. I would say there was a cold war between the two of them the whole way through, especially the especially after the 2012-2013 season. Alan Pardew was a kind of manager who, would, who, who, let's be honest, was very fortunate to get that gig in the first place. Um, but he came in and wanted influence over transfers. But he was told very early on that, like, no, look, the influence, you're one part of a decision-making process. But Graham Carr had bought himself the influence by basically bringing in so many good players in that early stages. Um, Teoti was already a £15 million footballer by the time Alan Pardew came in and they'd only spent £1.5 million on him. Ben Arthur had obviously come in. They loved Ben Arthur. The, the board loved Ben Arthur because he was, again, you know, I mean, he cost them virtually nothing. And he, if he'd have gone on to be what they hoped he was going to be, he could have been a £20 million footballer at the time as well. So that was the problem, I think, that Pardew wanted influence. He wanted to bring... He came with his names and his names were always British kind of players you know usually under 30 to be fair to him but they were they were players that he felt he could rely on guys that he could go into the you know that he would have in the dressing room players that he could he could do I mean you saw the kind of players that he ended up relying on were Scholar, Mike Williamson, James Perch all those kind of players were the kind of players that that, that um, Pardew ended up turning to whenever he needed them and Carr just didn't think those players were good enough so they and they nine times out of ten they went with what Carr recommended rather than what Pardew recommended and I think they probably were right to do that because the players that he recommended were better at first but the problem is the disconnect comes when the manager is working on the training ground with these players and if he starts to doubt whether those players are good enough and doesn't play them then it becomes a real problem and there was a massive tension between the two of them after the at first Pardew's not going to complain is he because he's got Johan Kabai, Denver Bar, Papi Cisse really good players Everything's going swimmingly that first year. Really good players. They take the, the division by storm. But then the second year, he just gets Vernon and Anita and he wanted, and he just didn't think he was good enough. So he wanted other players to play in that position. And Newcastle effectively blocked signing somebody else to replace him because they said, well, you're not playing Anita. Then he ended up getting all those players in January. So Suzoko, Gufran, um, Young and Biwa. Young and Biwa. Now, Young and Biwa is a great example because he didn't. He just didn't think Young and Biwa was very good. He, aerially, he didn't think he was good enough. Didn't think he had. Didn't help about him. Played him, play him out of position though. Played him out of position, but he didn't think he was good enough. He, did, he thought if I play him as centre centre back in the Premier League, I will. I'll lose my job. Was what he effectively thought. And but Newcastle had spent a fortune on him, and Carr had staked his reputation on him. So it was a really that that was where the first sort of signs of tension came um, I think and I think Pardew's sort of felt like well he's telling me which players to sign he's never been a manager or he's been a manager at Northampton but I'm at Newcastle United now and Carl would kind of and I think there was you know the fact that the manager didn't have the ear of the owner as as much as Graham Carr did became a became a problem for Alan Pardew and then the following summer when they signed they went out and signed six players Sem de Jong Remy Cabella, which I think was the big mistake that Carr made, was Remy Cabella. I think Remy Cabella wasn't up to it, and and that and that was I think that really set the two off against each other because that summer he brought these players in, and it was just like Cabella couldn't get in the team. Um, Younger Bieber wasn't getting in the team. He liked Colback, 
um, but then Emmanuel Riviere wasn't good enough. Um, and there was a few mistakes that were made that summer, although I think the biggest mistake they made was just not getting Remy in permanently. They ended up getting him in on loan, but that was that was a big, 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 big issue. Um, so it did, I think that was, that was what fatally undermined them. But don't forget, for a brief period, they were really successful. And it was, I think, it was... They would have been happy to go along with each other as long as the club kept him. Both got long contracts, didn't they, after that that successful season, which yeah, eight year contracts, which is bizarre in any uh, realms of football, but an eight year contract. And I mean, do you think because we say that you know Mike Ashley was disappointed, obviously not qualifying for the Champions League, but at the same time he then went out and handed the two an eight year contract. So was it a kind of was it Mike Ashley didn't really? know how he, how he felt in many ways because that no, gives no. off a different I think I think what happened was that you had Ashley I mean Ashley the big problem with Ashley has always been that he's a contradiction because he wants the club to operate without him having to get involved because he wants to be involved with sports direct and stuff but he can't help himself he has to if he feels things are going, they're spending too much money or they're getting too carried away, then he will he will get involved again um, and he keeps getting involved periodically in Newcastle United but yet his message to the people that work for him is, I don't want to be involved in Newcastle United. But yet what he does contradicts that. I mean, he's gone on, he, he gave some evidence to the High Court where he said, I'm the last person to know what happens with Newcastle United transfer targets. But, you know, but we're told that he is the person who effectively green lights the, the big money signing. So he had to be involved in sort of giving the green light to, to the Miguel Mayeron deal this, this January, for example. So I think what happens is that Ashley was upset with that, so they didn't spend any money that summer. But he also thought that they they were obsessed with stability. They were obsessed with the idea that we are Newcastle United. We're not going to be the same as every other football club. Every other football club will have a bad season or a bad run of games and they'll sack their manager, which will cost them loads of money. They'll have to bring in a load of new staff behind the scenes and have to bring in a load of new transfers. So their, their idea behind the eight-year contract was, you know... That, you're, that you are in this job forever. So you make decisions for the long term. So don't worry about not getting the players that you wanted this summer because if things go wrong, you've got an eight-year contract. As long as things don't go catastrophically wrong, you're still going to be here. And that's what, and that is what happened, to be fair. Like people say, oh, well, his contract's still got a year to run. He stuck with Alan Pardew through periods of form that would have, he would have lost his job at other clubs. But they didn't. They, they stuck with him because they were obsessed with stability. I went to speak to Lee Charnley um, after Pardew left. And I remember him saying to me, at other clubs, it goes up and down and up and down. And we used to go up and down and up and down when Freddie Shepherd was here. And we used to sack a manager and bring a, the flavour of the month. And he goes, we're not going to do that here. We're going to stay level-headed and take a rounded view of everything that's going on rather than just sacking a manager just for the sake of it. And if you look at it, they've had three managers in, what since Cuton in 2011 no 2010 wasn't it 20, 2011 eight years they've had three permanent managers at Newcastle United now there's not many other football clubs that have had that few managers so that has been a consistent that they've been they've had that stability you know look Rafa would have been in trouble at a lot of other football clubs for the runs the two runs that he's had if it was Newcastle United before Mike Ashley he would not have probably survived that 
bad start and that bad run up to Christmas. But Newcastle are obsessed with the idea of stability. That's why they want to keep him because they don't want to have this idea of massive upheaval. They stuck with Steve McLaren for too long. Woffy's podcast yesterday made the point. They stuck with him for too long. So those eight-year contracts were about that. For Carr as well, it was that other clubs were looking at him and other clubs were kind of... He, he had other offers at that time. Other clubs were quite keen to go and take him and he, he could have gone back to Man City. I think he could have gone to... Um, Tottenham as well were, were interested so Man City were desperate to take him back they were really keen to kind of take him back but he didn't want to go at the time he wanted to stay at Newcastle because he, he was obsessed I think with the idea of kind of getting Newcastle to a position where they could actually win something so I understood the eight year contract it didn't it, the problem was that it was like it was never ever they were never he was never going to be there for eight years was he I mean, it, was, it was a bit stupid really but I could understand the logic behind it by the same token and, and Pardew had done really well you know it felt at the time as if he was going to be right but I think knowing his personality now you know he almost needs to be kept on his toes a little bit he gets a bit you know he does I mean he would probably admit himself he gets caught up in it a bit doesn't he yeah I think he's I think arrogant is is a, is a harsh way of saying it, but he's very confident in his own ability but didn't he didn't he uh, rule himself out for the Spurs job when no one had actually did. ruled him in which was Always an amusement. He was, he was asked at the press conference, but he he kind of he was one of these where he'd sort of I think he'd brief people to say, oh well, I'm not going to take the job if they ask me for it. But he did a, he ruled himself out of the England job as well. You know, at the time he was league, he was the league manager of the year, so you can't really argue with it. But it was a bit, it was a bit, um, yeah, it was a bit presumptuous. And looking back now, yeah, I'm not sure about it. But then at Palace, didn't they say? Um, yeah, he said it. Real Madrid, Madrid come sniffing it. Yeah. I mean, come on. Well, they might have a job at the end of the season, might they? If Zinedine Zidane doesn't last <laughs> So Pardew goes. McLaren comes in that summer. Mm. Um, Newcastle survive, obviously, under John Carver um, on the last day of the season. McLaren comes in. What what changes, if anything? So Carl was on the board, wasn't he? They had the, the triangle of power, as it was called, um, which I think was Lee Charney's sort of phrase he wanted to triangular management structure so the idea was i think there to integrate the the chief scout and basically formalize his powers at that point because he was a lot of people said he was de facto director of football i'm not sure he was because he didn't have any day-to-day influence on team matters he never ever tried to influence who was playing um, but he was he was the only voice in in recruitment by that point you know that that it was him and lee charnley basically doing all the transfers and they they were the two making all the decisions and the manager effectively by that point was not really having any say in it whatsoever mclaren didn't have any influence at all over transfers that summer he wanted joey barton and he mentioned richard keogh as the as the option for a defender um, to bring in when they were they were they were scrabbling about for somebody to come in to replace Colaccini, and he suggested Richard Keogh, who he'd had at Derby, and that just got I mean he virtually got laughed out of the building for saying stuff like that. Um, so it really by that point I think it was it was that I'm not sure how influential he was in bringing McLaren in. I know I, I heard the podcast yesterday. I don't think Carr really had massive he didn't know McLaren that well um, I think they were knew each other from the circuit but I think McLaren got the job because he was I don't know how best to say this but he certainly knew people around Mike Ashley did McLaren he had some friends who knew 
Ashley and knew the people around it. So it was, you know, I think I think they took the decision. He fit the bill perfectly. He was the best possible person to go and be the head coach. But I think he was also known to the hierarchy. So, um, and he wasn't going to kick up a fuss, was he? That was the top and bottom of it. Carr's the same. I mean, Carr, you know, would never ever speak publicly against the ownership because he knew that, you know, he knew that it was there. I mean, you know, you had the period in between where Joe Kinnear came back in and, um, you know, I mean, Carr nearly resigned off the back of that because he really didn't like the fact that Kinnear was coming in and talking about having influence over scouting as well. Um, but, but Ashley persuaded him to stay. And then I think going onto the board was really just a, a kind of, look, he is the most influential person on transfers. He's the person we listen to. So McLaren came in, was bequeathed this kind of squad of players that, um, and the transfer, the three, the three big deals that they did, four big deals that they did were all in place way before McLaren came in. Um, so that was what that was about, really. I think it was just effectively saying he's really important in this football club, so here he is on the board. So there were signings that you, you talked about there. Torvan, <coughs> uh, Wijnaldum, Mitovic and Mbemba. Mbemba came um, in, yeah. And you, you look at that list, I mean, obviously Torvan now tearing up in League One. At the time, though, he came to Newcastle after being voted the worst player um, that season by his own fans. But he was someone that uh, Card watched for a long yeah. time and really liked the look of. Um, do you think it was just the environment for Cabela, uh, for, sorry, for Torvan? I mean, Cabela is another one we'll talk yeah. about in a moment. But for Torvan, because he has gone back and he has done really well, Cabela not so much. Yeah. Um, so for Torvan, was it the was it the environment? You think? Yeah, I think it was a little bit. Um, I don't think he wanted to to particularly to, to leave Marseille. I think he liked he liked being there. Newcastle just offered him you know such a lot of money. I think really and the club a lot of money that, that he just couldn't turn it down. But but I think there's definitely Carr liked him. He felt that he was you know he would he would fit in really well in English football because he's he, he you know he just had that kind of explosive sort of turn I think you know you see him now playing for Marseille and he's just an exciting player isn't he just he, he scores got he scores great goals runs with the ball I think he was he's, you know the fact that he could play play on either wing he could play in about four different positions I mean the one thing I would say about Newcastle was that they had a lot of number 10s at the time a lot of players playing in between the lines and I think Carl was kind of obsessed with that idea that you could have you, it was great to have players playing in between the lines and Tovan was thinking the problem was when he came, he didn't fancy. He just didn't fancy it. It was a, it was a, it was a personality thing. They got, they got the wrong personality there. They just you, didn't get the right person. You mentioned there about playing in, in in between the lines, but how does that work with a manager and a and a scout like Graham Carr? Who Graham Carr knows he really is the man that that the hierarchy listen to, and if he's thinking this is how I would play. Then surely the manager has to be thinking this on the same page. Yeah, that was that was the thing. I think, and, and to be fair, I think that they did they did have meetings where it was like, right, we need a number ten, and it was like, I want to play as a number ten. I mean, Alan Pardew wanted wanted a but, number ten. But was it a case that Graham Carr would come knock on the door and say, look, this player is perfect for A and B, or was it a case that he would wait for Pardew or McLaren to knock on the door and say, I need this player to play in this position. It was always sold to me as a collaborative decision, but I, I, and I think to be fair, it was the manager who would say, this is how our team, this is how the team would set up. And then Carl would go off and find a player. But then what would happen towards the end of it was 
that the manager would say he's not suited for the that role I want a number 10 but I don't want that number 10 I want a centre back but I don't want that centre back I want a right back but I'm not, I don't want him so it was it did become a little bit of a it, that's where the, the confusion came in what happened that summer that you're talking about there the 2015 summer was they didn't have a manager so they signed a load of players to play a system that they didn't have a manager to come in and play I mean Van Alden was basically they'd done the they'd done the work on that before McLaren came in so McLaren didn't know that he was getting Vijnaldum. So then he had to play a system to make the most of him. And to be fair, McLaren was absolutely ecstatic that he got Vijnaldum because he McLaren wanted to play that technical way that Newcastle ended up sort of trying to play that that summer. Um, but the big problem I think that that year was just that they just signed a bunch of players who just didn't have that experience to to kind of kind of do it. They didn't have a good enough spine basically to to carry those players. Was there any chance that Graham Carr would have been appointed manager, do you think? Never, 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 ever. So there was one period where Alan Pardew had gone on Sky and said, um, Mike Ashley doesn't... He, he kind of said something along the lines. He, got, he, got, he was on goals on Sunday after they'd beaten Cardiff, I think, and they were doing really well in the league at the time. And he said... They were asking about Mike Ashley, and he said something along the lines of, look, Mike doesn't really understand football he doesn't understand the economics of football and he sometimes gets angry about it. And, and it was basically like, I think what happened, he got a formal warning, did Pardew. I think there was, a, there was a big worry in the manager's office that he was going to get fired for that because it was like, you don't speak about the owner like that. And it was, you know, I think he did get, he did get summoned um, as far as I'm aware. I think that that's what happened. And there was a, it really felt like he might, he might go. And I think Peter Beardsley was going to end up being in the, in the chair that week. So I spoke to Carr that week saying, you gonna you gonna you gonna be the manager, here? and it was ne- he was never gonna be a manager. I don't think he just didn't. That wasn't the role he wanted. And to be fair, as I said, he wasn't. Obviously, he had opinions about the team, but he didn't try and get involved in any of that. Uh, the problem was towards the end. I think Pardew felt he'd done enough as manager to warrant more say in the transfers, um, and he probably looked on and in a bit like wistfully when they ended up signing. Shelby and Townsend, who were the two of the players that he'd been pushing to, to, for them to sign ages. He'd wanted Shelby when he went to Swansea and they, he got turned down. So it was quite interesting really towards the end that they did sort of start coming around to those the idea that you needed a bit of an English core. Um, but uh, but yeah, 2015 was a, a big worry because they had a lot of money to spend then and that was the, that was the worry. And I think as soon as they went to Rafa... Um, the, the writing was on the wall for, for, for Graham because he just, he was never, ever going to be able to fit into the, the Rafa mould. Well, we'll get on to, to Graham Carr's kind of uh, departure. But do you, th- I mean, it, for Newcastle fans, it's so frustrating to see McLaren was given £80 million worth of players that season. And, you know, Rafa Benitez is, is, is just scrapping around the bargain, uh, you know, been to to sign the players that he wants, given Rafa's track record, and we were speaking yesterday. It's not always perfect. I'm sure we'll get onto that in a moment. You know, Benitez hasn't always had 100% success, but nevertheless, he deserves to be trusted um, to bring in the players. Um, just to finish off that list, though, that McLaren was given. Obviously, Mitrovic got shown the door by Benitez. You know, Mitrovic was open. He said, "I don't want to do the running." that Benitez wants a striker to do, Rondon's coming and, and has done exactly what Benitez has asked him to do. But, you know, Wijnaldum, yeah. like, you know, he could win the title. Yeah, I, I think Wijnaldum was an, was an outstanding player and, and, and in another era, 
he could have come in and been and been even better for Newcastle. I think the the problem with Wijnaldum was he just got dragged down by the by the players around him. Um, but he's, he was he was excellent. Big fan of McLaren. There was an interview a few months back, and he was you know full of praise for McLaren because he gave him he gave him a chance, and he he got him. Um, he, gave, he basically built a team around Wijnaldum, which was the idea, I think, that they wanted. They felt that since Nolan had left, they had, didn't get enough goals from midfield. So Wijnaldum was kind of seen as the one, you know, go and do, go and, go and, uh, go and get the goals, which he did, which he did do. I mean, the thing about Wijnaldum for Newcastle was that he was a successful side and he scored double figures from midfield. He was, he was excellent. He didn't score enough goals away from home, but that was something to do with the way that they played away from home. I don't think they played to his strengths as much as they did. But look at him now at Liverpool. He's playing a more sort of withdrawn defensive role. And he's that good that he can do that and look really impressive. He really is key to Klopp's team. He's brilliant. I think he's a really, really good player. And the fact that he can do all of these different roles. I mean, Newcastle got a really good player there. Um, and I think he would have stayed for another season. I mean, he might not have because if Liverpool come in for you, even if they'd have stayed up, it might have been difficult to keep hold of him. But they would have had a chance of keeping hold of him for a second season. And who knows where they would have gone under Rafa with that team. You know, we talk about sliding doors moments. I think 2012 is one. If they'd have, if they'd have gone and beaten Aston Villa, um, the second to last game of this or third to last game of the season for Newcastle, they would have stayed up that year or they would have been very close to staying up. I think they would have probably stayed up because Sunderland didn't, Sunderland could have gone and beaten Watford and then they would have gone down anyway. But if they'd have, Beaten, got something out of Norwich, got something out of Villa, the two teams that went down with them that season, they would have stayed up and they would have kept half of the players that they, they, they ended up having to sell. And under Rafa, what would they have done? He would have got rid of a few of them, I think, because he didn't fancy um, Mitrovic ever, really. I don't think he fancied Mitrovic ever, but he would have liked to have kept Van Alden, definitely. Uh, Sizoko. I mean, Sizoko, he, he tried to keep hold of Sizoko to, anyway. Yeah, to see Sizoko yeah. in full floor on a Benitez side yeah. was, was, we saw glimpses of it as yeah. well. And he made him captain. Rafa. Um, Tovan, he, he wanted to keep Tovan as well. I mean, he, he sort of tried to give him the hard sell that summer. Um, I think he knew that he had to go to go on loan to get rid of him um, that, that year because Tovan didn't want to play in the championship. But he, but when he came back, I think he, he, he came back in the in one of the periods and Rafa was trying to talk him round and say, look, come and come and be part of this. So I think three of the players that they ended up signing that summer, he would have, he would have liked to have kept because they were good technical players. Um, but the Rafa thing is just, it's just, I mean, we'll get onto it, I'm sure, but but it's just a fundamental difference in what you need from to scout a player. And it's no surprise to me that Rafa's head of recruitment is very low-key as opposed to Carr. Carr was a big personality, um, somebody who was able to live with Mike Ashley in terms of got on well with him socially. You know, he's a funny guy. And, and Carr was... And it was such. A, I think it's a shame, really, what happened with Graham Carr because I think he was a great asset for the football club, and it was just that they went down the route of it. It was impossible to maintain the high level that they had at the time. But he's, but he's, you know, I thought he was. My take on it was that he was a good, a good thing for the football club for a good three years, and towards the end, it sort of went wrong, and he made some mistakes. But there were, there were probably mitigating circumstances for him. But as soon as Rafa came in, when they started bringing in a high caliber of manager. It's then Graham Carr's job is not as important. He was important because the managers that they had were Hewton, Pardew, Carver, McLaren, not top level managers at the time. Um, as soon as you bring in a Rafa Benitez, for me, even if Graham had still been around, you have to say 
the managers who we're going to go with because his judgment is better than you know his judgment is should be final. Mm. So Newcastle get relegated under Benitez, and Graham Carr then leaves. Uh, well, in he the, didn't leave for well, the summer after, sorry, two thousand the summer of two thousand seventeen was was when he when he went. Um, do you think that was just the delay in the inevitable, or do you think Benitez had tried to work with with Carr and it got to a point where he just it's not going to work? I think I think they did. So they got on okay. I think I think Rafa sent him a sent him a Christmas hamper there first year that they were the first year that they were there and I think they got on well in terms of you know they, they like they kind of liked each other but I, they were just the thing about Rafa in scouting is that that Rafa and the reason that there is the, the the kind of problem at the moment at the club in terms of recruitment is that they can get on board with a Graham Carr because Graham Carr goes out and scouts the best young players brings them in and they retain their value because they are 24 years of age. And no matter how well the team does or badly the team does, they've got big sell-on value. But they are players, they are a collection of individuals where the manager's given the job of turning them into a team. Rafa's, Rafa's way of doing things is, looks like a mind transplant is required to get on board with what he does because Rafa scouts players to play in a system. So he will bring in, so he doesn't want a 24-year-old striker who has got a great record in in the Bundesliga, but might not be willing, based on the the reports that he's had, to do the job that Salomon Rondon does. Which is, if you look at Rondon, and yes, he's had a lot of personal praise because he scored ten goals this season. But if you look at the work that Rondon does, it's very unselfish work. But Rondon is a player who played under Tony Pulis and quite happily did whatever Tony Poulos asked him to do, which was a lot of running off the ball, not a lot of the glory work, getting very rare you know, opportunities and sights of goal. But Rafa needs to, needs to scout a very certain type of player to be in that pool. And those kind of players are not, necess- are not your Graham Carr picks. They're not necessarily... Um, you know, your Debushis, your Jan Mats. He doesn't want, a, he wants a right back who's going to do what, um, well, he wants a left back that's going to do what Richie does. I mean, Matt Richie in another Premier League club could be a, an attacking central midfielder or a, an attacking a winger, but he's, but, but Richie decides that he, Richie is, because of his mentality and because of the way that he is, he's happy to do the job that the team needs him to do. So it was never going to be the situation that you were going to have. Uh, Graham Carr sitting there recommending seven or eight players and Rafa saying okay we'll go with those players I mean Steve Nixon recommends players but Rafa has the final and the only say on who comes in so and he sticks to his guns as well which we know from the Rondon thing he stuck with it the whole summer um, and wouldn't let them recommend other players to him Um, Miguel Almiron you know they probably would have gone out and said well if if he's a French player playing in Ligue 1 and we gave him for 10 million or whatever it was that they ended up signing for 17 million. And then he's automatically gone to 25 million. The reason that they didn't want to sign Almir on at first was because they said he'll virtually depreciate in value as soon as he comes here because he's, you know, he's only been playing at the MLS. If he doesn't automatically make an impact at Newcastle, then he's, he's, his, his value is going to go down. Look at Jacob Murphy now, probably not worth what they paid for him. And that's the problem. You know, some of Rafa's signings, it's a big ask sometimes to get the right kind of player to come in on the system. And it reduces the pool of players that you can go out and scout. You, you've probably got 20 
centre forwards that you could go out and sign who would fit into Newcastle's mould of being over being under twenty seven or twenty six. But when you but when Rafa's looking at them and saying, I need him to play this role in my team because that's how we're successful, it suddenly goes down to two or three. And you know, it might be we need to widen the pool by saying we can go out and sign a thirty year old and then you've got five or six players who can go and play. But Rafa's not just going to accept any old player because he says, Well he won't what's the point there's no point in me spending twelve million pounds on X from Ligoon because he cannot do the job that I want him to do. So why bother? And the problem was when Graham Carr was here, they did just sign players and say, Well, there he is, he's got a decent record at Monaco, make him work, make Riviere work in this system. Didn't work. Didn't work. And that was the problem. Save is a great example of that, you know, look good player, probably for what you know, for what they wanted to do, but just useless for what Newcastle needed him to do. So that's why Rafa. That's why I think it was never going to work with Rafa. But they tried. They tried for a while, and um, uh, he tried to. He recommended a few players. So I think he he did put in Wilford and Didi, who ended up at uh, Leicester and done okay. Um, there was a few players like that who the, he did recommend for Rafa, but Rafa just I don't think ended up signing too many of them. Matt Sells, I think he he kind of recommended as well. So there was a few that didn't really work that. That summer, but like your likes of Lazar and Hammers were Rafa picks. Rafa did all of the scouting. Rafa does Rafa, every single player who comes into Newcastle now. Rafa has had has decided he wants him. Might not be in his first pick, but they were, they're all Rafa players. Most certainly. Um, so, how, so how does it work now? Because before, I mean, just explain as well to to the listeners that once Graham Carr saw a player he liked, would he go directly to to the board? So or to it, the manager. No, I think I think what used to happen is that that, that Carr would have a team a team of scouts. He would go out and do the scouting himself as well, and they put them on a on a the computer system basically. So they'd log all the all the reports, and it was more a case of um, when they would then go and have the scouting scouting meetings, which I think they have pretty regularly at Newcastle United. Um, <coughs> he would say, "Well, if you want a left, if you want a left back or you want a right back, here's the." Um, here's the player that I recommend number one, number two, number three. So it wouldn't that he would go to the board, but um, they used to be able to get his number one picks through Ashley because it was like, well, it's Davo Yamma. He's a Dutch international. We can get him for five million pounds. He's 23, 24 years old. If he comes in, he'll, he'll be worth eight million pounds. And so Mike Ashley would just give the green light to those kind of players if the money was there. Whereas now the problem is that, you know, they're a much harder sell because they're 28, 29 or, or whatever. So that would be how that would be how it would work. But he went and did a lot of the scouting on his, you know, himself, which Steve Nixon does as well. I mean, there are scouts. So it's a fascinating breed is being a, being a scout. I think there's a great book by Michael Calvin um, called the nowhere men that deals with how scouts work, you know, because they've now, they've now got so many software tools and things. And there's a real idea of, can you do it through technology? Can you do it through, there's even people saying artificial intelligence is the way to go for football scouting. There's a lot of data-driven stuff now that argues that the the human eye actually seeing the player is doesn't matter. It's not it's not important. But I think Graham Carr would say it is, and Rafa would certainly say it is, because Rafa says personality and character is everything we need. You know, we need to get the right personality and the right characters. Uh, Graham Carr said that as well, but he wasn't dealing with them day to day, so it was it was harder. I think to sort of get an idea of it. Um, but but Rafa would certainly say that. So 
scouting's you know a really interesting a really interesting part of football because you live or die by your recruitment and Newcastle have lived or died by their recruitment in the last few years Rafa gets more right than he gets wrong and I think that's why they've been successful generally under him most certainly to finish off that I'm going to ask you for the best Graham Carr signing the worst Graham Carr signing yeah. and the, the nearly man the one who you really wish had come off um so I mean I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to give mine without really the explanations but you will go into depth about yours I mean I think goodbye was the best. Um, the worst was probably Riviere. I mean, what, what went on there? And the one I really would like to have seen would have been Young MB, where I thought he was quite harshly treated out of position, went to Rome, did all right. Um, I think under another manager, he would have been, been spot on. But for you, Mark, your, your best Graham Carr signing? I think you can't go far, far wrong with Kabai because he was just... I mean, he just changed the game completely, didn't he? He was such a classy midfielder. He was brilliant. Um, but I actually think the best one, if it wasn't Kabai, maybe Czech Teoti would be the one that I would say was just outstanding. I remember his first game at Everton and he was just brilliant. You know, he changed. In a, in a not outstanding team, he really, really stood out because the team that came straight up under... Uh, with Chris Hewton wasn't outstanding but it was bigger than some of its parts and Czech Teoti was the first kind of really really good signing so I really liked him and he could have gone I mean Chelsea were offering stupid money for him and Newcastle ended up staying with him the worst one the, the one I thought that really didn't work I mean Riviere's obviously like was useless um, but I think what I was told about that was he was recommended as they needed to sign somebody senior as well with him to kind of learn from him supposedly but they didn't end up doing that um i think cabela because it just i you, never saw it you you thought you thought cabela was the missing piece of the we jigsaw he was we were told he was i mean chris waddle told us he was uh he was he was gonna you know he was gonna be great i mean a lot of people thought that he was you know he was a perfect fit for the premier league but he just he just wasn't you know and like you said i think where his career's gone since suggests that he was he just had a few good seasons really before Newcastle got him. But it was a big they spent a lot of money on him really in terms of in Newcastle United terms and he just I just never felt he was good enough. I always wanted to see him get the chance, but then John Carver did give him a chance and effectively built a, a team round him, Carver, which is what everybody had been saying that's what Pardew should do. But then he did and he gave him the chances and he had one good game at Hull, I think, and then he was very mediocre after that. So that was a big, big disappointment. The one that got away from me was um, Sem de Jong. Big shame that he didn't, he wasn't fit. Because I think when he came in, he looked good in the pre-season and he'd been brilliant for Ajax. And he looked like he was going to be the brains of the team. And well, I, think, he, I mean, that was a, it was a it was a coup as well, wasn't it? I mean, because yeah, it, I think it was. he was a very, like you say, yeah. he had a very good time in Holland and, you know, a big name over then. Yeah. A lot of big, big clubs over here were after him. And, and it is, I mean... <laughs> His injury list is just yeah, and that baffling. Was, that was the problem. I mean, he had injuries for Ajax before he came to Newcastle. And the big problem, I think, was that he just lost. He was never quick, but he looked like he was playing with a piano on his back at times for Newcastle. He just couldn't he couldn't get around the pitch quick enough. I mean, you know, they always say, like, ten yard, first 10 yards are in your head. And I like the Teddy Sheringham sort of number 10s. And, but De Jong, he just never showed it. I don't. I can't remember him ever having a good game for Newcastle, and it was a big disappointment. So I think if he'd have had, you know, I mean, he ended up having 
I mean, he got that, he got a punctured lung, didn't he? He did, and then he was, I think he was all ready to come back, and then didn't he get an eye injury? Got yeah, poked he got in the eye. Or... In the eye. It was everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and he just he just felt like he was the number ten that they needed. Um, but I, you know, when you talk about players that got away, I mean, they were quite close with Aubameyang. I think at one point they could have got him if they'd gone a little bit earlier there. Lacazette, they wanted. Um, I'm not sure he ever really was that keen on Newcastle. But um, he also put Raphael Varane in before he went to Real Madrid. Um, I mean, Varane would have been an outstanding player. And they went Kurt Zuma as well before he, he got injured and wasn't, wasn't good enough. So there was a lot of players that, that, that they, could have, they could have signed from France at that point. Um, but they ended up not, not getting any of them. And it was a bit of a, bit of a shame. Um, but, but, you know, again, like everything with Mike Ashley, it is just... That he is the problem at the top of it, you know. That's that's the problem. He, if he, it's it, top and bottom of it is, it's a great example of you have a season where everything goes right, and then they kind of assume that that, that will happen again the next season, and it didn't. That's the big disappointment. To sum up, then in a sentence, uh, sum up Graham Carr's time at Newcastle. What might have been, I think, would be the thing. I think he was um, unfairly. I think we probably got a bit too carried away with him at the start. And then at the end, it was unfairly pilliard. But I think, you know, a really important person in Newcastle United's history and um, a shame the way that it went. He should have... What I really regretted was that he, he when he left, it, he left with a single line statement and he should have been able to go out on his own terms and he should have been able to, to sort of have... A, it should have been a bit more fanfare for somebody who was quite important at the, at the football club. I thought he should have, you know... He was really important for a period and he did really well for them and he should have maybe had a little bit more. I mean, he's never talked about it since. There should have been the option to do that, I think, because he was, he was great. A lot of things go on around the edges and I'm sure you know, there might be things coming out in the future about, about, what, about that, that period. But, um, but you know, for the, for the main, I think it was, you know, he got more right than he did wrong. Um, and, um, you know, Newcastle were at least, at least had a plan in those days. They at least had a way of trying to beat the system. It feels sometimes these days like they've almost given up. You know, that was an exciting period, or it should have been an exciting period, but it was also a frustrating one. Most certainly. But thank you very much, Mark, and thank you, everybody, for listening. If you head over to Chronicle Live, you can keep up to date with all the latest Newcastle United news. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at EIBW Podcast. We're also over on Instagram at Chronicle NUFC. And if you type in the Everything is Black and White Podcast on YouTube, You can find us on there where we will be uploading the full episodes of most of the podcasts we record. So we're over every platform. Uh, Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you very much.